Thank you, Derek. Uh, there is a Chinese compilation of work that has been put together dating back to the 5th century BC called The Art of War. The Art of War. And it was so highly regarded back then and is still today that the Asian countries particularly use it as a stand, uh, standby for their military training. But it has such uh, insight for all of military training it has had a great influence on us here in the West, not just for military purposes, but also legal and business purposes. And one of the tenets that it teaches states that every battle is won or lost before it is ever fought. I think what this is telling us that there really is three stages to a battle. One is planning, preparation, and then the execution. Today, we are bringing to a conclusion uh, Jesus Christ preparing his disciples for what I'm calling a battle that's looming in the near future of their lives, what we call the Passion Week. But to help us um, come back to this one last event in this preparation phase, to help the disciples as they go up to Jerusalem to execute the plan. I want us to review before we look at this one last event. Review Mark so we'll have greater appreciation for this event. Mark, the gospel that we've been studying, is broken really into three sections. The first section, which is chapter 1 to 827, chapter 8, 20, verse 27, some will refer to Jesus Christ's public ministry. This is where he is going, proclaiming that he is the Messiah. He demonstrates it with miracles, and certainly through the proclamation of his word. This is during that public ministry to the crowds at large that he are in, is inviting folks to come and follow, to be his disciples, to be followers. We read there, in Mark 1, 1, that he is proclaiming the good news regarding himself, Jesus Christ. That he is the Messiah, the deliverer, the rescuer, the one that the children of Israel were anticipating throughout the Old Testament. That would take them out of bondage and oppression and give them freedom to follow the Lord God, the one and only God. The disciples, as they were going along in this public ministry phase from 1 to 827, you know, they, they got it. They got it enough to follow, but they really didn't get it. Perhaps like you and I. There are some aspects of following Jesus Christ we get, but then we come to certain sections or, or God takes layers off our understanding of our own selves, and we may realize we don't fully get it. Confusion. There can be confusion, and I think that is what this phase uh, really demonstrates. There's a great deal of confusion. There were expectations. Typically in this phase, Jesus Christ would warn them not to tell anyone about his identity because he knows that folks will get a false expectation what the Messiah or Deliverer should look like. 
and false expectations when you're looking for a Messiah or deliverer will blind. Well, then the last section we have, before I've jumped ahead of myself, um, these verses here, it shows the confusion that the disciples had in this time, a period of public ministry. One time, we rehearsed this already, the disciples were out on the boat, and they were being buffeted by wind, and Jesus Christ walks out on the water. And he gets into the boat, and the waves calm down. And the disciples were amazed and terrified. And this is what they say. I have it up there on the screen. They were completely amazed for they had not understood about the loaves, the healing of the, not the healing, the feeding of the multitude happened just prior, a miraculous event. They did not get it, that he was the Messiah, that he could work miracles, that he has come to d- deliver and rescue. It said they did not get it because of the hardness of their heart. Hardness of heart blinds people. They got it, but they didn't get it. They were confused, and partially because of the hardness of their heart. We see this confusion manifest itself again in Mark 8, 17 and 18, where they forget to bring bread. And Jesus Christ hears them talking about, hey, we got a dilemma. What are we going to do? We don't have bread. And Jesus Christ wants to seize this time to teach them about the Pharisees and Herod and the opposition that's going to be in front of them. And it tells us there, while you are talking about having, why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes to see but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? Don't you remember? Hardness of heart blinds. They got the message, but not all of it. And then the last section. Mark is divided in three sections. The last section is what we often refer to as the Passion Week. These are verses from 11 chapters, I mean chapter 11 to the end of the book, to chapter 16. This is how Jesus Christ is going to become the deliverer how he is going to actually be our rescuer because of the events contained within this Passion Week. It tells us clearly and how Pastor Derek started this whole series with Mark 10, 45. Look at it there in your book because it's real close. It's right before the passage of Scripture we'll look at this morning. This is how Jesus Christ becomes the Messiah the rescuer, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. The battle, the execution, the Jesus Christ giving his life, that battle is his, but the disciples are participants by being his followers. They need to be prepared, and this is what is up ahead. And then we come to the middle part. This is what we're in, bringing to a conclusion today. It's the preparation. 
Because we've seen already in that public ministry phase, there was confusion. And if there's confusion already, and they have false expectations, when the stress of the Passion Week is upon them, they're going to really be blind. They're going to want to jump ship. Jesus Christ recognized he needs to pull away from the public, the masses, and focus attention on his disciples in preparing them for what's up ahead. And so we call this period from Mark 8.27 to chapter 10, uh, preparation. Some will refer to it as the transitional phase of Jesus Christ's ministry amongst us. This starts with the question there in 827, uh, you know, who do you think, uh, who do you people say that I am? Peter proclaims, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then in verse 31, uh, look at Mark 831 with me. Mark 831. He then began to teach them the disciples, he's pulled away, he's trying to prepare the disciples. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Jesus got a big task on his hand during this preparation. I got to get these disciples to understand, to see it. And so he recounts this message once again. In 930 and 32, the same message, he comes about it again. Mark 9, 30, 32. They left that place, passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were. So again, the indication, he's pulling away from the masses. He's focusing on the preparation of the disciples because he was teaching them. He said to them, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days, he will rise. But they, verse 32 says, they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. 10.32, we see the same message. The disciples confused, you know, kind of like you and I, you know, getting some aspects of this invitation to follow Jesus, but we don't understand all of it. The disciples, again, in 10.32, he takes the disciples aside, and he told them again. We see that they're still confused, because following that in 10.32, they ask. their questions when Jesus Christ is saying, I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to be killed. Uh, would you do for us whatever we want? And they start arguing about who's going to sit at the right and the left hand of the Savior. And so we come to this very last event uh, in all of this kind of chaos and confusion, uh, certainly in process of their grappling and trying to understand it to this last event. Because it's after this they're going to proceed 
towards Jerusalem. It's what we refer to as the healing of blind Bartimaeus. So find in your Bibles this portion of Scripture in Mark 10 here. Mark 10, 46, you know, and be asking with me, okay, what's so significant? Why does he bring this portion, this phase of preparation to an end with this healing of a blind man? And I think what certainly challenged me was the genuineness of Bartimaeus' faith. He understood the disciples wouldn't get it perfectly. He understands that you and I will not get understanding his role and identity perfectly. But the invitation with what you do have, the faith that you do have, that it be genuine and that you respond accordingly. The faith that heals, a genuine faith, heals spiritual blindness. Jesus Christ wants to make sure their spiritual eyesight is improved. The disciples' spiritual eyesight is improved before going into battle. And so let's read this, this account here and work our way through it. Uh, Mark 10, 46. Then they came to Jericho. So they're moving to the south, going to Jerusalem, and they're coming through Jericho. Jericho is about 15 miles from Jerusalem, the place where they're going for the Passover. And as Jesus and his disciples, together with a large crowd, were leaving the city, a blind man, Bartimaeus, that is the son of Timus, was sitting by the roadside begging. So picture the scene with me. You know, they're in Jericho. Jericho's about 15 miles. It's the time of the Passover where all Jews within a certain radius or distance were commissioned and told to go to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And so there was this quite a pilgrimage of folks fulfilling this by going to Jerusalem. So the crowds would swell. A lot of bystanders would line the roadways to see who all was making this trek to go up for the Passover. And amongst them was this blind man, Bartimaeus. Eager to hear what people, as they passed the teachers and leaders, would be taking that time for the followers of them to proclaim messages. And so the bystanders would be listening. And here is this beggar, verse 47. When he heard that it was Jesus, Bartimaeus heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout. So word has percolated out about this person, Jesus of Nazareth. Stories were being propagated about his healings and his teaching throughout the land. And so this uh, blind man was aware of the supernatural things that he has done. And when he hears as Jesus of Nazareth, he begins to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Now, Jesus, son of David, is a title often that would be given. This blind man probably was as confused as the disciples. He probably thought of, by this title, Jesus, son of David, more of a nationalistic kind of ruler or king that would provide deliverance, a conquest, 
Something that would elevate his sense of uh, value and importance. Not somebody who's going to give up their life to rescue. So he doesn't have a full theological understanding, perhaps like a lot of you. You, you may think that, uh, you know, I've got to comprehend Jesus Christ fully before I respond. Here we see a blind beggar sitting by the roadside hearing words about this Jesus of Nazareth. From his announcement, uh, how he addresses him, it was probably limited in understanding, but the genuineness of his faith prompts him to respond. And he says, have mercy on me. He knows he needs help. Blind men that are beggars know they need help. Verse 48, many rebuked him. Many rebuked him and told him to be quiet. But he shouted all the more. Uh, See the genuineness of his faith, uh, the crowds and the expectations of all those around him didn't matter. He was focused on Jesus Christ. It was radiating from in here. People tried to squelch what was in here by getting him to be quiet, but there was no squelching this blind man. It was purity, genuine faith being expressed. In fact, it tells us that he shouted all the more. Son of David, have mercy on me. Here the clamoring, people trying to rebuke him, and Jesus Christ stops. You know, he hears something. Everybody else is rebuking, and he says, call him. Call him. See, don't you love that picture? When everybody else is rebuking, Jesus is calling the most unlikely people that you might think that would be worthy to be called. That's exactly who Jesus calls. Jesus doesn't see things like you and I and how we value and esteem things. on people. Jesus doesn't see things that way. See, we're blinded to see how Jesus Christ sees things. Right before this, remember uh, in chapter 10 here where they were trying to bring the children to Jesus Christ, you know, parents and family members, the disciples rebuke them. Jesus is too busy for the children. Jesus said, suffer the little children to come unto me. He calls them. He calls them. And so Jesus, we see, calls him. And so they called to the blind man, Bartimaeus, cheer up. On your feet. He's calling you. And again, we see uh, not a premeditated, a planned, a, a staged, but we see in verse 50, throwing his cloak aside, he jumps to his feet and came to Jesus. I thought, hey, dude, you're a beggar, you're blind. This is about the only thing you have is your cloak. Don't at least take it with you. Uh, See, he's not thinking like you and I might in our sophisticated means. He's just genuinely responding to Jesus Christ, and he's just 
expressing what's in his heart, to not have regard for those things that maybe we cling to. And he throws his coat aside. He jumps to his feet. And he comes to Jesus Christ. Reminds me of last week. What a contrast. Last week, a rich man who had all the wealth. And he was invited to come and follow Jesus Christ. But it tells us when he calculated all the wealth and that he was so wealthy, it made him sad because of what it would cost to follow Jesus Christ. The rich man was blinded even though he had physical eyesight. The blind man, the beggar, was poor, but spiritually he could see with 20-20 vision. Verse 51, Jesus Christ asked to the blind man once he comes, what do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked him. The blind man said, Rabbi, or my teacher, I want to see. Jesus Christ says, go, said Jesus, your faith has healed you. What Jesus is saying, the genuine faith that you had, it wasn't the amount that you had. It wasn't that your faith was perfect, but the genuineness of your faith and the fact that you acted on it, I'm going to reward it. And I am going to heal you. And immediately then it tells us, he received his sight and he followed Jesus along the road. He didn't even have to think about it. Immediately. And what does he do? He instantly becomes a follower of Jesus Christ. I find it interesting that passage, that question in verse 51. Jesus Christ asked him, what do you want me to do for you? Here's the blind man, this beggar, coming to Jesus Christ. And I think, Jesus Christ, isn't it obvious? Here's a blind man. He can't see. Why are you even asking that question? It may seem obvious to us, but Jesus Christ knows life will change for this man if he gains eyesight. Life will change for this man. Think about today's... um, Values that we have as a blind man begging, you might get a hundred dollars a day. As a seeing man begging, you might get fifty dollars. Do you really want to get your eyesight? Do you understand what it will cost? Seeing will cost you something. The question is do we, does the blind man? And do we have courage to know and to see what it will cost us to gain spiritual eyesight? Genuine faith costs. Certainly, genuine faith costs control. 
control, or I should say an illusion of control that we work hard at fabricating for ourselves. Genuine faith demands accepting life as it is, not as I would have it. Trusting that God, despite circumstances, that God in the end will make all things right. We end this preparation phase with the healing of blind Bartimaeus the same way we started it in 827. Go back there in your Bibles. Look, look at what we had that was the doorway into this preparation phase that is also a doorway to the ending of it. We read there in 827. 8.22, they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. And we go on, we already recounted and read this account, and Pastor Derek preached on it, I believe it was Pastor Derek, about the healing of this blind man, Bethsaida. So think about this, we have this healing of a blind man right before this preparation phase, and now right at the end. Some refer to it as a bookend to this transitional phase of going from the public ministry, this transitional or preparation phase, bookended by two healings of two blind men, and then what we're going to start next week, the Passion Week. To prepare his disciples for the battle ahead, he knows they need to see with a different set of eyes. They have to see things differently. They have to understand what the Messiah, what he's going to look like, and it's counterintuitive, it's not conventional, so I need you to see with spiritual eyes. Disciples, do you get it? Because for you to hang with me as we go through the Passion Week, you're going to have to see with these new eyes, these spiritual eyes. I like what Helen Keller says here. Better to be blind and see with your heart than to have two good eyes and see nothing. Helen Keller, author, speaker. Some of you know her story. She had her eyesight, but at 19 months, incurred a disease that took her eyesight. And this is how she responded when somebody said to her, oh, isn't it horrible that you went blind? And this was her quote. Better to be blind and see with your heart than to have two good eyes and see nothing. This is what the disciples are being prepared for. To see with the eyes of their heart. To see the obstacles in their life that are creating a blindness. As we come to 
the Passion Week. Let's make that our prayer. That we see with the eyes of our heart the text now from 11 to 16 differently. And to help with that, I think the uh, prayers of Paul are most appropriate here. So let's bow, and I'm going to offer a prayer from Ephesians. He talks about that the eyes of our heart will be enlightened. And so I want to pray that over you, and then we'll just swing right back into some season of worship here. My prayer would be that God helps us with our blindness. Paul's prayer here in Ephesians 1, he says, God, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, God, give Ed, give the people in this room the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that we know you better. God, may my eyes, may my friend's eyes in this room, may the eyes of our hearts be enlightened in order that we know the hope to which he has called you. God, that we may see and know the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and his incomparably great power for us who believe. God, may we see that power. It's like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. Far above all rule, authority, power, and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. God, Those are the kind of eyes we want to see. Your greatness and what you offer us. Heal us, Lord, of our blindness. Amen.